welcome to We Dig Metal Evolution, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Sam Dunn's Metal Evolution documentary series, hosted by Nate Wilcox with Eugene S. Robinson of the art punk band Oxbow and entertainment lawyer Alexi Ald. Let It Roll is the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate, Eugene, and Alexi discuss the first emergence of hard rock and heavy metal in America in the late 1960s. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and we're back again with Alexi Old and Eugene S. Robinson to continue our discussion of Sam Dunn's Metal Evolution series that aired on VH1 a few years back. The second episode is called Pre-Metal One, U.S. Division, and goes from surf rock to garage rock, the early West Coast hard rockers, Detroit Rock City, and then into the later 70s hard rock with Kiss, Aerosmith, Ted Nugent, and finally Van Halen. He opens the episode with this. The question for this episode is, what are the origins of American metal, and how do we get to Kiss? Is this the question we need to be asking, Eugene? No. <laughs> no. Alexi? No. Alexi? No? No? Uh, uh, what is the question we should be asking? Why don't you have Chuck Berry in your... <laughs> <laughs> that was last week. Let's get... They came well, back at the end of this episode. <laughs> no, no. I mean, what, what's, what, what's super uncomfortable is I'm trying to fit this stuff into like this threadbare conceit of his, you know? I mean, oh, it's, it's a legitimate line of inquiry. You know, American Metal, Kiss origins but i mean that makes about as much sense as uh, it just actually it, it it makes so little sense that it, it beggars belief you know i mean um and i and and i'm a i'm a kiss fan you know but uh you gotta understand yeah. that you, you gotta understand that this was i don't i don't know man i this was i'm not i'm not following him i'm not following him and i don't know why outside of you know providing a three-second excuse for you know raison d'etre for the entire series this one this version of it it just it's 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 sort of asinine i mean it's like co- talking about the, it's like comparing jesus christ and spider-man ouch you know because spider-man's you could, on top obviously you could spend a lot of time doing that but it doesn't mean that it makes any sense or is any good you know let's see alexi i didn't get it either the thing that's kind of the only reason i can see him putting it in there is if you go back to my youth and how when they had that kiss television movie and all the kids in elementary school were just talking about kiss kiss and who are you gonna play kiss me the phantom right kiss me the phantom and who are you gonna play as kiss and like as a kid like it being on that star wars level thing where it's something you've never seen before and you're just that's all you can talk about for like weeks Right, but the thing is that I don't know if in Canada he saw it and was around, or if it was a situation where when he did his research and was trying to figure out, like, well, why do Americans like heavy metal music? And someone said, Oh, Kiss Phantom, you know, and they're like, Oh, yeah, I'll go back to I'll go back to Kiss, you know. I just, I just, I don't know if it's the similar thread that we saw in hip hop evolution where. He's just getting his stuff second and third hand, so he just easily led down certain pathways, bereft of his own experience. I tell you, you guys one, are haters. One, I gotta say, uh, you guys. One, one, one thing he didn't touch on, and one thing that would have been a, a, a compelling line of inquiry. It, there's no mistaking that at the age of 13, the two most ardent Kiss fans I knew, and the guys who turned me on to to Kiss, were, were not only guys from Brooklyn but also Jewish guys. Mm. And this is something like, like everybody in Poland knows my wife is Polish. <laughs> if they know Oxbow, they know, oh, that guy, he's married to a Polish woman, right? So everybody in Brooklyn knew one, 
that Kiss was from Brooklyn. And two, you know, if you were Jewish, you knew these cats were Jewish, mm. right? I mean, Jewish guys in heavy metal. I once, in the early days of the internet, floated just to see in some music chat room that Glenn Danzig, because Danzig obviously, obviously is not his real last name, that Glenn Danzig was Jewish. And people flipped out as though there was something incompatible with, you know, him being this kind of tough guy and being Jewish, you know? Um, so you're from David Lee Roth and I mean, there quite, quite a few Jewish guys. So I, I think that's a compelling line of inquiry, but trying to build as a stepping stone to something or someplace or another, put Kiss in there just as it's, it's nonsensical. Especially when he's rehashing stuff that we've seen before. I mean, the whole notion of you were made for loving me and the, 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 the disco ruination, you know, it's something that's been just so played out and has been mentioned so many. I've seen multiple VH1 documentaries on metal talking about that and having ad infinitum, <laughs> a number of metalheads talking about it. So again, I just, it was just nothing, there was nothing new from his Kiss inclusion. Other than the fact that Kiss shouldn't have been included at that point. It shouldn't have been included or shouldn't have been the center of the episode? I don't think – not included at that point to the, the degree, the center of the episode. You know, It's one of these things yeah. where they first show Kiss, you're like, okay, wow, this is interesting. That's right. Okay, Detroit, Detroit, Detroit. But then the Kiss thing just like, you know, you're going to pay so little time to the Stooges and you're not going to mention certain things yeah. MC5, but you're going to devote so much on Kiss, including the disco – a fall from grace. It, it, it just well, totally misplaced. My argument in his defense would be... What's your was, argument in his defense? Would be, I think we're all genes here, right? Do we have three genes? Do we have maybe an ace and a, and a Paul and a gene? Who did you play? Come on, at Halloween time. Who are you? Oh, oh no, no. Are you Gene? Come on, I was 13 years old, man. I was not true. Oh, you're too old for it. I was eight. So, see, you're too old for it, Eugene. Yeah. Alexi mm-hmm. and I was in the sweet spot. You're too young for it, Alexi. I was exactly in the sweet spot. I was in third grade mm-hmm. in 77. So, Kiss was enormous. I was ace. I was, of course, I was yeah. a, a lead guitar. I, was I had. Ace I was ace, ace too in fifth, in, uh, when I was in uh, five years old. And when I went to my Kiss show during the disco era in Arlington, <laughs> Texas, I was I was in the newspaper photographed as Ace Frehley uh, with I my friend who was big, Paul I Stanley. I paid big money to see that. You gotta- hey, track it down, track it down for or Star right. Telegram. Um, so anyway, but but that's that's the thesis of the episode. We can quibble. Obviously, you guys disagree. But Kiss was the biggest thing in '70s hard rock in America. I mean, by miles, oh, miles oh, yeah. and miles. So, it's so like the I Vanilla can... Ice or MC Hammer for for uh, hip hop. Even though, and, and look how they slided Vanilla Ice and Hip Hop Evolution. Uh, they did slide in, but Vanilla Ice had one song. Kiss had multiple, multiple. Like from that run from Alive through Alive Two, you know, Destroyer, Rock and Roll Over, Love Gun. The, the four solo albums live too. They were enormous. I mean, that's a run. Vanilla Ice you know? had a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle rap, baby. Go Ninja, uh, yeah, yeah, go yeah, Ninja, yeah. go. Go Ninja, go Ninja. And it moves. So, but that's really, like, we've sidetracked on that because I just had to throw that out there because I knew it would be raw meat, raw meat for you two yokels. So it, <laughs> it was, you know, but but then he gets, he then he goes into the history. And so we've already covered a lot of the history in this, you know, his previous episode, but now we're focused just on America. So it's a good chance to cover some things I didn't cover. So they go all the way back to surf rock. I'm fine and dandy with that. They focus in on, um, uh, now I'm like on it. Dick Dick Dale. Dale. Yeah. Dick Dale. Dale, Who's, who's enormous, enormously important. Miser Lou, you know, a Turkish American guitar player. They might Lou. Huh? Miser Lou. How do you supposed to say it? Miser Lou. Miserloo. Okay, it's an instrumental. I mean, who, who knows how to these things? But, you know, yeah, I'm from Texas. We don't know how to pronounce yeah. anything. But, you know, obviously an important figure. And he was especially big around when they filmed this because he was still alive. He was still touring up till the day he died because he was so broke because Mike Curb allegedly uh, and, and other record execs, uh, you know, mistreated the dude. You know, they talk about the Leo Fender partnership. Leo Fender, obviously, the creator of the Staticaster, the Telecaster, the Fender Amps, and he worked closely with Dick Dale on, on creating the sound. So I have no problem with that. It also was a good chance to bring in Gene Krupa, who Dick Dale IDs as, a, as an influence. And they talked about Buddy Rich previously, and they kind of ignored G- Gene Krupa, who was, you know, a jazz Ooh, big band. Drums to play on. Yes. And, and uh, you know. Works at the Jazz Museum, so I got to get that. My hand's all over it. I, I see. So, so they, they cover that in. But I got to say, 
if you only talk about Dick Dale and you leave out the ventures and every other, you know, the safaris, et cetera, et cetera, all the other surf groups, and then you leave out Dwayne Eddy and Link Ray, who weren't yeah. surf rockers, but were guitar instrumental rockers. And Link Ray frequently cited as the inventor of the power chord. Rumble has a massive distorted show. Yeah. So I'm kind of torn here. I feel like they covered surf and they used Dick Dale as a proxy for it. And they also use him as a proxy for guitar instrumentals. But you got to at least name check Link Ray, I think. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I, I was I was okay with that. I was okay, mostly because I feel I, I have a certain amount of sympathy for for Dale and how badly done over he was. You know. Yes, he was exceedingly exceedingly bad badly done over. From there, they go into garage rock, which is an obvious logical next step. But then they pick Ted Nugent and Amboy Dukes to epitomize garage rock, which. You know, their hit Journey to the Center of the Mind is on the Nuggets set, the first edition of the Lenny Case Nuggets set. So they are garage rock. They're, I, I think they're a fine garage rock band, but they're leaving out the whole Pacific Northwest scene with Louie Louie and the Kingsman. Like, the Kinks ripped off Louie Louie to get to You Really Got Me, and they're just going to leave the Kingsman out of the whole thing. So, yeah. And then the Sonics and Paul Revere and the Raiders and the Whalers, that whole Pacific Northwest scene of frat rock that – largely predated the British invasion, yeah. whereas most American garage rock is a reaction to the British invasion, like they said. But, yeah. you know, I would like to have seen the Pacific Northwest get more of a shout out there. And then, of course, Ted Nugent makes people skin crawl these days because he's such a jackass. He's, well, he he's did a, at the beginning of this, too. So it was, it yeah, was something you see. Ted Nugent's like, Obama's okay, you know what? I remember pre-craziness, I mean, pre-political craze Ted Nugent. And then he, you start out with that. It's like, did you have to include that like in the – like? Yeah. The, I think they did that because they had to deal with Ted Nugent. And so they're if he's going to be a jackass, they're going to show him – let him show his ass on the thing. Like, yeah. I, I, I can they, totally see that. And I imagine they cut a goodly sum of it out. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hours and hours. The one thing yeah. that – that Nugent is valuable for, we'll come back to here, but but there's a priceless Ted Nugent quote that they have. But I think, I don't know, to me, the Amboy Dukes are far from the quintessential garage rock group. I Why mean, there's so many other there then? Because he had access to Ted Nugent uh -huh. and because Ted Nugent's a star. I mean, you know, I, you tell your producer, you tell your funders, we're going to interview Ted Nugent. And they're like, oh, I know who Ted Nugent is. You tell uh, him, I'm going to. Okay, just like the know. Kiss thing. It's all making sense now. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you know, you 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 got to interview the lead singer of the Sonics, and and you're going to get blank stares from, you know, your yeah. your funders. So so, you know that that totally makes sense. But and and you do have to include garage rock. I mean, that's where American rock responded to the British invasion, and and just got harder and harder. And I do want to point out in Ted's defense that the, the influences he cites on the Amboy Dukes are Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley, yeah. and then and then Sam and Dave, Wilson Pickett, and James Brown. Which, you know, he was listening to the right stuff. And yeah. and for an American garage rock band, they were actually fairly hip because a lot of the American garage rock bands were just listening to the white British guys and totally oblivious to the black um, R&B guys that the British guys were, were getting it from. But so let's keep moving. The next step is West Coast hard rock. And they, they immediately zero in on Born to be Wild and Steppenwolf. Then they talk about Blue Cheer, which Lester Bangs famously cited as the first heavy metal band. I do not think Blue Cheer is the first heavy metal band, but they were heavy and they were loud as fuck and they deserve to be in the story. And Steppenwolf, I think, has a place as absolutely critical American hard rock group. And they did use the term heavy metal in a song, although they don't mention they got it from William Burroughs. But we're not in their head. What, Alexi? What, what should no, I'm just saying it's just about? one of these things where just it just this episode is all over the place in terms of influences, and it's problematic because again, I know you're trying to defend them not having uh, Chuck Berry, and then last time Bo Diddley, but you know you're interviewing people and they're telling you you're spending so much time, folks. Like, yeah, this is who inspired me, and you're gonna have nothing on these guys, and then you're yeah. gonna go off and have these other people who are who just seem so. And, and again, I'm trying to suspend my disbelief watching this and just all over the place. It, it was so bad that I'm thinking like, okay, what isn't a, a, a forebear of heavy metal music? Like, what is it? What, what what kind of what kind of musical form have you not found that's been Lawrence done in the Welk. U.S. Yeah, that had that's <laughs> not a forebear of it. And it it just it just it was well, so all over the place and again metal versus hard rock versus rock for it it was just all over the place so the whole 
uh, point that you made about you're trying to please your funders. Okay, that's what that is. That's totally what it is. And I think that the, in, in the future, when I watch future episodes, that will inform my uh, agita uh, about the series. But you're not going to say Steppenwolf shouldn't have been included, are you? No, but I wouldn't say they wouldn't. But I mean, at the end of the I mean, because again, I don't know how many documentaries I've seen that said the same damn thing. It's just, it, it's, it's, it, it was on VH1 and it reads like a VH1 documentary with regard to the pop cultural references and common knowledge, the, the people's history of heavy metal music, you know? So it started out with so much promise in the first episode. And, and then it's just now, it's just when he's go- dealing with the US, something he knows nothing about, the, the flaws are just dramatically exposed, just like in the hip hop evolution thing. It's just frustrating to watch. So I can't wait. So he moves on to other stuff that I know nothing about and hopefully don't know more than he does, you know, uh, trying to flounder his way, trying to get the funders to, you know, give him money for some shit Man, that doesn't matter. Dudes, uh-huh. dudes on fun- here. I was, I'm a little more. I know, I know. I'm just hoping Sam Dunn's not listening about that. Because <laughs> we'd love to have him on the show. But No, a friend, a friend of mine is having drink. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I, I think the, the key thing that they've got here is that San Francisco did play a role. Because San Francisco is where rock really becomes distinctive from rock and roll in American musical history. And even though bands like The Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane are more folk rock than, than R&B-based rock, they were loud. They had big amps. They were playing the ballrooms. They were playing these LSD parties, and it and it was Happening. a break from, yeah, the happenings, the BN. It was a break from previous things, and so it is a clear line. And San Francisco is critically important to this history. And I think of the two San Francisco bands, Steppenwolf and Blue Cheer, are the most legit heavy rock, hard rock bands. And you know, I mean, Blue Cheer was a massive influence on grunge and. And massive influence on on tons of metal bands. Pentagram cites them in the Pentagram documentary. Blue Oyster Cult love Blue Cheer. Lester Bangs talks about Blue Cheer. Uh, Steppenwolf, you well, know, we played a show I mean, with they, them. Blue Cheer. Yeah. yeah. Wow. In a weird, in a weird twist, um, you know, because they had gotten cozied up to the SST Cats, and they had booked the show. With like it was probably just one guy left in the band with Whipping Boy, my old hardcore band, and they never showed up. <laughs> and they stood you up, brutal, brutal. And they also uh, it wasn't like much, no, I, we were just playing on that boy. So I see, they, they 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 talked to Randy Holden, who was a second guitarist in Blue Cheer, and they don't even mention that Lee Stevens is the guy playing all the licks that they're showing, and they're showing Lee Stevens, who played on the classic first two Blue Cheer albums. But the things they left out are Iron Butterfly of In a yeah. Gutted Defeat of Fame, who yep. were, the L- were the heaviest band in LA for a long period of time. And they leave out yep. Vanilla Fudge, who yep. was the heaviest band on the East Coast by miles. And easily in 1967, Vanilla Fudge was the heaviest band on earth with their version. They were doing heavy, heavy versions of Motown songs. And for a variety of reasons I can see, I mean, Iron Butterfly is like most often remembered because Led Zeppelin blew them off the stage repeatedly on Led Zeppelin's first tour. And it's not even a fair fight. I mean, you know, no matter how great Inagata Davida is, Iron Butterfly was never going to be able to follow Led Zeppelin in any planet, any time, any yep. era. Yep, and yep. then Vanilla Fudge and their producer Shadow Morton fell completely off the Sgt. Pepper's concept album wagon and made some of the most ridiculous. I, I highly recommend digging up their second, third album. And with streaming services, it's easy. Like if you want to hear psychedelic overindulgence, the, the second and third Vanilla Fudge album, I mean, Mwah, magnifique. But so then they take us to Detroit, Detroit Rock City. And I think you can make a case that Detroit bands are not central to ah, There you go, Sorry. Eugene. I told it, I, I could have told you that was going to happen. But pre grunge, you would never have included Detroit this prominently in a heavy metal history. Like, like uh, up until Nirvana won and Soundgarden and Alice in Chains, et cetera, et cetera, most metalheads were like anti punk. And so MC5 and the Stooges were seen as this as this wrong road and losers who couldn't play, et cetera, et cetera. But now Detroit has been canonized. Part of that is because Iggy, Iggy Pop has become this star so that the producers of the show know who he is. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Wayne Kramer, against all odds, has become 
a guy who can navigate the biz, even though he tanked the MC5 documentary, A True Testimonial, which you can't see anywhere, even though it's brilliant, because Wayne Kramer got crucial and tried to sue him. Uh, you know, just a classic Wayne Kramer self-defeating career move. But they do have plenty of MC5 footage here, which I think is essential to getting the idea across yep. that MC5 yep. were incredibly great. Like they yep. were the first arena rock band in America when they blew cream off the stage in 68. I mean, that's, that's no easy feat. It doesn't talk about how they crashed. No, 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 come on. You're not good. I could, well, this is, this is an age old argument for about three pieces. Uh, it's been very few three pieces that I've seen could take on a four piece band or five piece band. No way, no way. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. Without you know, without the studio sweetening, Eric Clapton didn't have a rhythm guitar to carry it while he was solo. Yeah. But anyway, so they tell the story of MC Five, or they they sort of hit the highlights. And I do the, the Ted Nugent quote I was referring to was Nugent admitting, like I thought I was a badass. I thought the Amboy Dukes were badass, and then we saw the MC Five and had to pick our jaws up off the floor. So. Every band that saw the MC5 in that era, at least Midwestern bands, bowed down to MC5. I mean, they were the kings of the scene, the Grande Ballroom, the early Midwestern musical festivals. And so I'm glad to see them getting their propers. And then they talk about Iggy and the Stooges, which were kind of the little brother band that were signed to Elektra at the same time. And, you know, they, they have the great footage of, of Iggy Pop at, at one of those early festivals where he's walking on the crowd. And, and so... <laughs> I think they did a good job of getting the Stooges and MC5 across to fans who might never have heard of them before, which yeah. I think is valuable. Um, but then they sort of just write them off uh, because of drugs. They they totally failed, you know, which was true, a part of the problem. But MC5 had many other problems than that, like including Jan Winter, Jan Winter of Rolling Stone going out of his way to torpedo them. Um, sort of the left eating its own conflicts with they weren't the diggers in New York. I think they were the motherfuckers in New York that were insisting that the MC5 have free admission to their show at the Fillmore East. And the MC5 ran for the limos and their credibility as revolutionary rockers was totally destroyed. And, and you know, the feud with their manager, John Sinclair, et cetera, et cetera. And then they go to Alice Cooper as, as the guy who was a Detroit rocker who made it big. And even though Alice Cooper were carpetbaggers who came from Arizona and California to Detroit, they were a part of the Detroit scene. Um, and they did make it big on the radio. And I love those Alice Cooper albums. I mean, 18's a classic, School's Out's a classic. The first, you know, several Alice Cooper albums, Ballad of Dwight Fry. There's there's a lot of, of good stuff there. And and they get Bob Ezrin in there, who's a the producer of Alice Cooper, and later on is going to produce Kiss, Destroyer album. And um, he explains how he, he heard a hit. He said, this is so dumb. It's got to be a hit. No, dumb it down, dumb it down, dumb it down. They tell exactly the DJ at the Windsor, Ontario station who broke it and, and how once they were broken on the radio, then they were a radio act. And, and you know, I mean, I'm old enough to remember the rumors about Alice Cooper. I mean, if, if the rumors about Rod Stewart and David Bowie were ridiculous, the rumors about Alice Cooper were just off the chain. Oh, he, he chopped some girl's head off at a concert. You know, I mean, just on and on. He raped seven virgins at a show. Like the things I heard when I was a little kid about Alice Cooper were just- Yeah, that Marvel comic book. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was I mean, like almost unheard of back then, him and Kiss. Yes. And, and you know, and, and he had an early version of Corpse Paint. And so, you know, I, I think it's totally apropos to have Alice Cooper in here. And they're going to have focus more on shock rock. We'll get a whole another episode later in the series that's kind of the heirs of Alice Cooper and Kiss. Um but the two biggies that they leave off here are Grand Funk Railroad, who absolutely took the mantle of the MC5 at these massive festivals. I think it was the Atlanta Festival where Grand Funk Railroad broke through. They didn't have a radio hit until 75 when Todd Rundgren uh, produces We're an American Band Forum. They were just a touring, shirtless, sweaty, you know, the great Homer Simpson episode where he's like, you know, the competent uh, bass playing of, of Don Brewer and blah, blah, blah. You know, I don't personally like Grand Funk Railroad, although I know plenty. I mean, the Butthole Surfers, for example, love Grand Funk Railroad. You know, so some some people, you know, they were an influence on things. They also don't mention the Bob Seger system, which, as silly as it seems now, Bob Seger was in that Detroit hard rock scene. I mean, he was playing on the same shows with these cats, and and the Bob Seger system is perfectly credible hard rock from that period. So, I don't know. Thoughts on this Detroit Rock City section, well, Alexi? My, my favorite, uh, you, you, 
you, the, the one showing up event that I still like, which is a little bit of old and a little bit of new, and I'm sure you've heard about it, is when Pearl Jam uh, invited Steve Cropper on stage. <laughs> and the guitar player for Pearl Jam was like, oh, Steve Cropper's coming out. Yeah, well, okay, I'll show him a little bit of something. And he just, just goes nuts, right? And Cropper walks out and he was, he, he was said, he's, he talked about this himself. He said he was like, yeah, see if you can handle that old man. And he said, Cropper plugs in his guitar, comes out in overalls, right? Like he's got the overalls, the beard, nothing. Plugs in his guitar and within 15 to 30 seconds, dude was like, I don't even know why I play guitar anymore. <laughs> That's how great fucking Cropper was. It was like, if you could cause somebody to have a crisis of confidence in 30 seconds and your chosen, chosen field Prices of confidence with the stream. Why are you talking about Steve Cropper, uh, the guitar player for Booker T and the MGs, and later on the Blues Brothers? How is this relevant to Detroit rock? <laughs> because you were you were talking about the band being shown up by ah um, okay okay yeah, okay okay yeah, by mc5 i get it i get it yeah that's still yeah i'm sorry i had to explain the joke to you but it's still <laughs> it uh it's just it's it's great it's or it's like whipping boy playing with the bad brains but we all knew that was gonna happen so well yeah that's fairly pre predictable but it's or yeah. like henry rollins opening up for iggy pop like he, he rollins has the stories about every time he he played on the same bill as iggy pop he's like this time i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna show him something and every single time iggy just demolished him you know so or, or we'll actually more more apropos would be uh, uh, a tool opening for the rollins band in tijuana many years ago and like just yeah that was a tough tough gig man tool crushed him like repeatedly so tool crushed the rollins band and, and, and from the opening slot yeah like, rollins Easily. band dirty little secret about the rollins band is they weren't that good that's you know, well the players kind of, were great the players were great they were know, but, but rollins can't think, actually sing or, or exactly. write songs so without yes. getting there to write songs for him kind of yes. like him anyway we'll come back we'll finish up the rest of this episode kiss aerosmith ted nugent as a solo act and van halen which will carry american rock through the 70s another jewish rocker mm -hmm. And now, a word from our sponsors. Continue our discussion of Metal Evolution, Episode 2, Pre-Metal, U.S. Division. And when we stopped, they were just about to lead us to the promised land, which they teased at the beginning, KISS. And how does KISS get big? Now, I think part of your beef with this, Alexi, I've been thinking about this, is that you're expecting them to tell a history of the music, and it's impossible. They're telling a history of the music business is the best they can do, because you just you can't capture the magic. What are you doing? Hawking your CDs over here? This is a audio only no, podcast. Like, oh no, no, no. Chef's oh, kiss. really? Oh, I forgot That's about that. Yeah. I'm just showing you that I got the new cattle decapitation record as well as at the gates. 
actually actively listening to heavy metal these days. See, and that's metal qua metal as opposed to metal qua hard rock, which is what we've got here. Like nothing really, honestly, that they've talked about. Blue Cheer, arguably metal, but not, I mean, on, on the road to metal, but everything else, MC5, Stooges, Kiss, this is all hard rock. Yeah. I mean, none of it has a classical influence. And, 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 and honestly, American hard rock didn't really sound like metal, except for the band Pentagram, which coulda, woulda, shoulda. Um, yeah. I don't know if you guys are familiar with them, but you know they, they auditioned yeah, for kids. They had a, they had a, a production date, I think, with the Blue Oyster Cult producer. But other than them, nobody in America was really doing metal metal to that reached any kind of audience. But anyway, let's get back to Kiss. So they're, they boil the Kiss story down to basically, without saying it, radio no longer – is open. You can't be Dick Dale or whatever or the Beach Boys. Cut a record in your in your dad's garage, get it pressed up, and be on the radio the next day anymore. By the seventies, I mean this is top forty radio is in full effect. So a band like Kiss would put out albums, they would tour, they would put out albums, they would tour, and until they get that elusive AM radio breakthrough, they're basically spinning their wheels. I mean, it did. It Don, did Don, Kirchner, Don, Don Kirchner's rock concert. Yes, that, the legendary. That, that broke a lot, and that, in fact, that was the first place I heard Beth, and I was really disappointed. Because <laughs> you were what sixteen at the time, or something like that. Yeah, and I stayed up late till you know it was like you know if it wasn't Saturday Night Live, I wasn't staying up late, or I was out at a club or something, and I was like, oh man, it's going to be great, and it's like, dude, at the because you already had the first three albums, and you were into yep. a live, and yeah, my yep. older brother was the same way. He had the first three, and he was into a live. Beth Destroyer comes along. He's gone. His eight-year-old brother picks up the torch and and got his first three Kiss albums basically free. So, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, but anyway, but that's 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 the heartbreak. But but before we get to Beth, we have to get to Alive because they tell the story. You know, we're, we're touring. Nothing's breaking through. We don't have the money to 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 do a fourth album. The record label doesn't have the money to do a fourth album. So we desperation, hail mary, we're going to record a live album. The first three albums didn't sound right. What's the missing, you know, for, what's the missing factor in the equation here? And it's Eddie Kramer and his mobile trucks capturing that audience magic. That's what. And then Kiss Alive blows up. What they don't mention, of course, is that this by 1975, when Kiss Alive comes out, this is a pretty well-worn path. The Grateful Dead did it first. They spent hundreds of thousands of dollars making their first three albums for Warner Brothers, sold five copies each. They cut Live Dead for essentially nothing, sell 300,000 record companies happy they're on their way. Allman Brothers do the same exact thing. First two albums, nothing. Do Live at the Fillmore East, cheap, big hit. So the whole double live album thing is already well-established by the time Kiss does it. I guess Kiss is arguably Frampton. maybe the first. Frampton. Yeah, Frampton. Well, Frampton's a year later. That's a year later. Yeah. That comes out huge. in '76. But yeah, yeah, huge, absolutely huge. And anyway, so that's that's the you know the story. And so Kiss breaks through. I did want to read this one little quote though, where uh, Peter Chris is going, um, you know, that no, it's Ace Frehley. He's saying. It would be like, you know, we play a show. No, it's Peter Chris, sorry. We do a show, they sell out, crowds cheering and smiling. We get a lot of girls, have a great party. And then the next day we read the papers. It says, we suck, we're loud, we should be hung, drawn and quartered. And and I'm quoting that just because I think it gets to the heart of the problem with the rock press in the 70s. If you're not Bob Dylan Jr. or Bruce Springsteen, they didn't want to know. And I, I, you know, I was listening to a thing today where a guy they asked Nelson George, "How did you become a rock writer?" And he's like, "Because I was reading a review of um, the Brothers Johnson, and somebody's talking about the lyrics." And I'm like, "If you're talking about the lyrics on a Brothers Johnson record, you're completely missing the point. Obviously, there's opportunity here, and we lost you, Jake. What, what's He's coming back. See, I thought you were going to keep He's quiet about it so the audio people would not know. It would be a special treat for the video folks. <laughs> I see. I see. Well, you know. Super weak too. Um, but, so, so he's back. Uh, but, but then and then, and then, then the next thing they talk about, Beth, I'm going to go out of order because they, they bop around, is then they talk about, you know, they have the live album breakthrough. And then they hook up with Bob Ezrin, Ezrin who we've already met because of the Alice Cooper thing. And he tells a story how, you know, I go to see him. 
crowd's great, packed hall, crowd's on their feet, everybody loves them. And then I notice everybody in the arena is a 15-year-old boy. And I see obvious room for growth here, get some chicks, uh, do a song that's going to appeal to chicks. So you know, he, he finds Beth amongst their many demos, turns it into an orchestral ballad, massive hit. So Alexi, you're smirking, you're gnashing your teeth. What you got to say here? No, I think it's funny just how the there's a, just a, the formula that's in place. One, you talk about the live album, and two, the ballad. I mean, the whole introducing a ballad for a metal group is something that throughout the 80s ad nauseum and 90s that was done. And I just it, it was just I was grimacing because I was just reminiscing at all the groups, kind of like the 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 kiss moment that you talked about earlier you know with your brother right where there's a group you're into and then they do that thing to get commercial success and as opposed to feeling good hey you know what i'm glad these guys are making some money and they're able to anybody it's like ah they're stabbing me in the back as a fan so yeah 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 did but, you ever come you, back to kiss cj no but you're missing you're missing the point here i think with this and that's a inevitably you're in you're, you start out you play like crap you know you garage band you, you you get better you start playing better and inevitably what starts to happen is the music musicians themselves start to get older they can play better and they're older their their emotional palette is not the same emotional palette mm-hmm. they had when they were 22 years old right so we should look at instead of looking at it like we are tortured by these power ballads, we should understand that this was a clever producer's way of keeping them from doing whole records of that kind of stuff, mm. you know? Because at a certain point, these guys are like, you know, I mean, I've heard them say, I've heard rock guys, I, you know, I'd like to do some music my parents can listen to finally. It's like, yeah, you know what? N- none of your audience wants that, you know? So, so the compromise is now like, uh, that they can show their virtuosos on a, oh, it's real singing, it's real playing, I've got orchestra here you know i'm up there with ben crosby now mm. i'm up there with uh, i'm a real singer right, like right. easy way to, to for them to for them to buy into some sort of sense of legitimacy without you know and then without totally alienating the cheap seats and if it happened to bring in women you know because i know plenty of plenty of women who are into metal and they don't like the ballad stuff either so it's not it worked in the 70s and 80s but you know i mean this is not something but that's nobody None of the women, none of the women at the Slayer show were saying, "Man, I really wish these guys could do a ballad so I could relate." Yeah, but, you know. Yeah, but by that point, metal is a niche thing for a niche audience that knows what they're wanting. In the '70s, this rock was the yeah. mainstream, and yeah. and they were looking for mainstream acceptance. I mean, something like rock and roll all night would never, ever, 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 ever get on AM radio today. I mean, never, ever. Like, there's zero, zero percent chance that that's going to be in there as a hit. Yeah. But in the '70s, you know. Yeah, I mean, but you, you know, if you if you can name a local AM station, I'll give you a nickel. <laughs> well, okay, it's FM radio anyway, and and it would be ninety three point seven KLVJ. your local. That's your, 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 your local. That would be the station. local rock station. Yeah, but it, but they don't even play hits, and I can the 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 hit stations are further up the dial to the right. But I mean, who listens to radio anyway? And I'm fifty years old. I'm not the demo, so you know. Man, I, I, had, I, had, I, had, I had Sirius in the car for a few months after I bought it, and then they did the upsell, trying to get me to buy. And I was like, "Why would I? Why would I do that when I can listen to my own stuff? Why? Why? I'm not gonna pay five dollars a month for radio? Are you out of your minds? You know?" So, well, I mean, I think yeah, a good man. thing is, you know, I had rediscovered radio when I had to drive to work, and the fact that the college stations are still, God bless them. You know, are still going strong, and it, you know. So anyway, that's just a yeah. My hats and, off and playing to college random, radio is still doing it. Yeah, random surprises, and that's fun. But uh, so that that's Kiss. Then we come to Aerosmith, and and they <laughs> the key key quotes I want to get to, to with Aerosmith is is the guy who says that the formula for Aerosmith is you take the Rolling Stones, you combine it with Led Zeppelin, uh, a guaranteed formula for success, which I don't think is quite, I mean, A, lots of people are trying that, and I don't think it's quite as easy as they say. And then um, the other thing, other quote I wanted to get was Tom Hamilton, the bassist from Aerosmith. And he said, you know, again, being slagged by the press. And he's like, they were writing us off because we were a second-rate Stones ripoff, which, you know, especially the, the look of Steven Tyler and Joe Perry. They look very much like Keith Richards 
and Mick Jagger and and especially Tyler with his giant lips. But there's another band they don't mention at all here that was on Mercury Records at the same time as Aerosmith was signed to Columbia that was coming out of New York instead of Boston. That was the group that Keith Richards and Jimmy Page were actually hanging out with that everybody thought was going to be the big stars, and that's the New York Dolls, and mm. not 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 a mention, you know. Um, and there's yeah, a variety was, of reasons. That was shameful. Yeah, yeah. They'll, I, I'm pretty sure they're going to come back to him in the glam episode because the Dolls you know, made zero they, commercial impact. Huh? And I and I had Go a ahead. really weird moment about eight days ago where I was like walking around the house and I was like. I miss the New York Dolls. (laughs) I mean, I've never had this thought before in my life, but suddenly I was like, and I understood totally what I meant. I miss the milieu they came out of, the milieu they created, and I know that there is nothing like that that will ever happen. Which is for for the the uninitiated, the milieu. Uh, Just 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 the the seventies where before before punk rock hit, but these guys had this idea that they wanted to do something really different. One of the in a documentary on them, one of my favorite quotes is, "They dress like women, but we didn't know any women who looked like that." So so they they were just taking. West uh, West Side culture, you know, kind of the gay, you know, trans thing. I mean, just and and if if I've I've met a lot of, you know, I've been the same restaurant with Jagger and I, you know, there was nobody cooler, nobody in my mind than Johnny Thunders, nobody. Mm. And I've met met a lot of people in rock and roll, but nobody. He was probably it could have been the time I met him, being seventeen or eighteen. But, uh, and you know, Joe Hansen's still around. He's still hanging out with Harley, yeah, you know, yeah. going punk rock shows. So mm. he's the last man standing, the last original doll still alive. Sylvain Sylvain yeah. passed earlier this year. And I, we got to mention Alexi, your former client, Johnny. Uh, yes, I had. Or can uh, you, are you, go ahead. Uh, no, I, I can't go into, you know, details, but, uh, you know, by the time he came through, it's not good times. Hold up, who yeah. are we talking about? I don't, I don't know who's Johnny Thunders. Alexi represented or referred at Did some you? point was legally involved yeah, with very Johnny briefly, Thunders, so. very briefly. Yeah, but still, possibly the coolest man alive. But again, I would have to say too and much. And that's what too it was passed on to. There was someone that was so starstruck. That's Johnny Thunders. I was like, okay, there you go. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then, and, and and then, and then when it turned out, you know, it went sour. They're like. That's Johnny Thunders. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And and, and there are many. And we don't. Have to, I don't want to derail it by getting into the dolls, but I, I do think you'd need to mention the dolls here. That they were they were huge in New York. They were seen as something that might break big in America by the record industry. I, I think that probably taken more seriously than Aerosmith at the time. But they were junkies. Yep. The whole they looked gay on the album cover. The production did the roar, so you know a number of things, but mostly they were junkies, and so they just crashed and burned. Um, well, Aerosmith, they, 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 they crashed your bird, crashed your bird, and crashed your bird, and crashed your bird. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. And also, Johnny Thunders is the kind of guy who everybody knows as a rock star by the time he's sixteen, and even before he really had a band, he had girls waiting on him hand and foot. I mean, as soon as he has a band, Jimmy Page is pulling up in the limo. Hey, Johnny, you want to hang out? I mean. You know, of course he's going to go go wrong like that. <laughs> that that is never ever going to work. But Aerosmith doesn't you know, have those particular problems. He said he said it best. You can't put your arms around the dream. A memory, a memory. Come on, memory. I, I'm you're up. The, to- you're the lyricist. Okay. Yeah, so. I'm up. <laughs> I gotcha, gotcha. And so with Aerosmith, though, it's the same basic story that they they slog away. They open up for a ton of bands. That and it's their third album finally breaks through. Toys and Attic has some traction. Then they re-release the power ballad "Sweet Dreams" from their first album. Goes to number six pop. They're on their way. Um, the other thing that they didn't mention though is that you know I think a lot of times people slag the New York Dolls and say, oh well, the reason Aerosmith made it and the Dolls didn't is the Dolls couldn't play and Aerosmith are these great musicians. Well, Aerosmith is totally notorious for using session musicians. Like their most famous solos, like you know, are totally session guitarists and everything. Uh, also, did you notice how they kept using photos of Brad Whitford, the ugly rhythm guitarist that they never talk about or mention by name, but when they wanted to show how Aerosmith was messed up, then they've got a really hideous looking picture of Brad Whitford. <laughs> I'm like, the time I saw Aerosmith live, they did this dueling solo thing where, you know, Joe <laughs> Perry and Brad Whitford are doing solos and nobody turned on the mic to Brad Whitford's amp. 
So Joe Perry stands up, rips, shreds. Then Spotlight comes on Brad Whitford, and it's like, what, huh? And then, you know, <laughs> and they went through the whole thing, like back and forth four times. So I don't know. I'm sure the guy's a rock star in his real life. I'm sure he's a cool guy, everything, but he's been a punchline for my entire experience as a fan. Um, anything you guys want to add about Errol Smith? Yeah, man. I mean, not at this yeah. stage. Other than the fact that the sad thing is, when you talk about the dolls and the drug usage, it, it's it, for me, it's always bittersweet when Aerosmith's whole reputation is like, "Oh yeah, we really did drugs. Ha 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 ha. We survived. There are a lot of toxic twins." And then you you look at New York Dolls and other groups that didn't, yeah. and it's just it's just not funny. You know, it's just I yeah yeah, yeah. there's yeah. Also, one of the guys who was on the road crew with Aerosmith after they got clean was telling me that it was kind of sad because uh, Tyler didn't know what to do with himself. So, you know, they'd be loading gear out after the show and he'd be like, hey, what are you guys doing? So we're loading out the gear. So what are you going to do after that? And they're like, well, we're going to go back to the hotel and just hang out. You know, it's like, okay, could I hang out with you? (laughs) I mean, he... (laughs) He didn't know what to do with himself yeah. without that whole kind of cyclical. So it's like, yeah, yeah man, drugs, yeah. Party. yeah. If you want to tag along, you just, you know, whatever. So that was just yeah, a kind yeah. There's of, a certain you know, point I mean, where he turned into a forty-year-old traveling salesman. I mean, you know, yeah. and if you don't want to hang yeah, out at the hotel bar, be an alcoholic, then you're just watching the yeah, cable, cable TV. We, with Oxbow, you know, you got we have at least we have one member who like. We'll, we'll push it so that we're not going to all these great places and only seeing the insides of clubs. So it's like, we're getting up early tomorrow. We're going to the Hermitage or we're going to, you know, the Louvre. We're, we're doing, we're not just, we're not gonna, and I'm always the guy who was like, fuck that. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, consequently, so consequently, my, my wife is complaining to a friend like, oh, I know, he never takes me anywhere. I was like, you kidding? We've been to like 30 different countries on and she goes on tour i go yes on tour she goes nightclub 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 night so you know god yep yep it's the old john lennon it was a room and a plane and a car and a plane and a room and a yeah so but but next they go to cal jam 2 they don't they don't have the little section titles anymore but the, the 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 next segment is about rock festivals and they choose cal jam 2 as the one to focus on because it was the biggest hard rock centric festival in 1978 couple hundred yeah. thousand people in California, you know, it's headlined uh, Ted Nugent, Aerosmith, you know, Foreigner Heart. And I think that that was a relatively good way to do it because that 70s era, there was not like a Beatles of hard rock after Led Zeppelin had fallen um, a mm-hmm. little bit. Other than Led Zeppelin, there's not really an, I don't over, know, an overwhelmingly dominant. There was what, Kiss? Man, I mean, man, ACDC. ACDC wasn't huge yet. They're not huge until 7980. So ACDC is like an underground I'm band at this point. I'm, like, I'm based on Stives in high school, 78, 79. They were um, – Well, for kids people, and, and, you know, yeah, yeah, guys with jean jackets and, and ballpoint pen tattoos yep. were into ACDC, <laughs> but they were not they were not headlining festivals at this point. That's, you know, we're talking you're, about – You're talking to one. You know, you're talking to one. Yeah, yeah. The Woodshop special. Is, I mean, you, you remember the guys in the in the 70s, 80s that would have that jeans jacket and it would have like 15 yeah. band yeah. stickers oh, yeah. on it. Yeah. And, you know, so this is kind of – and it would be not necessarily hardcore metal like it would be in the 80s. It would be crap like – and I'm not even dissing them, but, you know, Nugent and Hart and Foreigner and, you know, just basically anything you might hear on rock radio would be, yeah, I like to rock. So, you know, and, and I think that's a key part of the experience. We had the Texas Jam and Texas Mass massive massive show somehow, in dallas somehow, two years in a row i somehow at one point ended up with rollins's skateboard at my place his old skateboard and i'm like what the fuck would you write ted nugent on your skateboard but he was really into nugent back then you know it's, oh yeah uh, rollins and ian mckay are both totally into nugent and i mean nugent yeah. gets a ton of hate because he's an asshole and he's a right-wing lunatic but in the 70s ted nugent was Great A hard Strangle. rock. I mean, he had three or four. Strangle. Yeah, yeah super cat scratch fevers all the way through. But also, and also you politically, know, he didn't get really weird until what the the odds? the nineties. I mean, or like yeah, late, the odds, late, yeah, late nineties. Because I remember mm-hmm. just I still in the nineties. Yeah, he was in that was band funny. with the guy from Sticks. Yep. Yeah, he was in the band yeah. with the guy from Sticks, Damn Yankees or whatever, and he was yep. just Ted, crazy Ted Nugent. I mean, he was talking about bow hunting all the time, but nobody, you know, that yeah. wasn't seen as a political thing. 
So, but the only thing I want to bring up about the festivals is they don't talk about the Atlanta festival. They talk about the Gross Point Festival in 71 that had the MC5 and the Stooges. I don't think Alice Cooper played at that. And they, and they showed footage from that. But they don't talk about Atlanta 1971, where Hendrix headline anywhere from 150 to 600,000 people showed up. Mm-hmm. That's what made the Grand Funk Railroad the band to come out of the Midwest and become rock gods. Alma Brothers were there. They also don't talk about Watkins Glen, which was by far the biggest, most successful festival of the 670s, but it wasn't a heavy metal festival at all. It was the Alma Brothers and the Grateful Dead and that whole jam band school of rock, which wasn't even identified as a thing yet. Um, but anyway, that's, that's, that's all about festivals. Then they kind of do this downfall of hard rock. And and they talk about Aerosmith playing the, the Cal Jam Festival and Tom Hamilton does the, oh, you know, we really blew it. And I wish I had better memories of this. And they, they talked to David Krebs, one of their management team, you know, and he's like, it just wasn't fun anymore because the guys are doing so much drugs and they're falling apart. And I remember like when Walk the Line came out, my brother and all his friends were like, eh, this isn't, you know, two songs. Eh, this isn't, you no. Know, yeah. Aerosmith definitely lost the plot around that time. And then, of course, they bring up Kiss and the way they dramatically lost the plot by going disco. Although, honestly, I was made for loving you, I think, has aged fairly well. I mean, you know, it has for what it is. I liked it back in the day. (laughs) Yeah. For a guy who liked liked disco, I was was more all right with that than I was with with a Beth. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It wasn't even the worst track on Dynasty. I remember getting Dynasty and everything from the bad cover photo to Chris Peter Chris's makeup not being right on the cover. And then the best song on it is a Rolling Stones cover. And I didn't even know 2000 Man was a Rolling Stones cover, but I'm like, oh, this is only good. That and the disco song with only good songs on there. So, you know, they, they were totally, totally done at that point. But I do, I do have do to all say that, that all, the, all the discos I went to, that song was never played in a disco. So they yeah, got they no. got they got dinged for it being a disco song, but they were never playing. And I never, ever, ever mm. heard that in a disco. Zero times. Zero. If you were discoing in Dubuque, though, you probably would have yes. heard it. Like this is the well, period you know, when every place had a disco. I mean, you know, you, you know Des Moines you know, had you know, a disco. You know where- I did hear I did hear it disco roller skating in upstate New York mm-hmm. outside of Poughkeepsie. There I heard it. I heard that's when I also there heard my go. Sharona, my Sharona, the knack, and you know that was and Rock yeah. Lobster. Mm-hmm. Oh, disco the- see, you're getting a little ahead of the plot by bringing the new wave, but <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing no, I want to I want to mention that they. Yeah, I know, I know, but but my Sharona is 79, and and Rock Lobster's 81, I think, but. They they paint this picture of disco and decadence taking out all the hard rock bands, which sets them up for, but one band emerged like a flower in the desert, and it's Van Halen, and they've got the joie de vie, and they're fun, and, and they're exciting, all of which is true, um, but they don't mention punk rock, and that the whole thing with Van Halen was it was this fluke counter-marketing to punk rock. Everybody in the business thought punk rock yep. was going to be the thing. And and that, oh, well, punk rock's not going to be the thing, they said after, you know, the Sex Pistols vomit all over. <laughs> I mean, just, just, you know, do what they did on their tour and kill any chance of, of commercial success with their behavior and Malcolm McLaren's anti-promotion. But then they think, oh, we'll just rebrand it as New Wave and that'll be the thing. And, you know, the cars and the knack and, and, and there, there is some success there. Nobody thought Van Halen was going to be successful from the record business, except Ted Templeman. He cuts the first album and it's got enough of the up-tempo stuff. And it's like they say in the, the, the documentary, you know, bye-bye fog hat, goodbye sticks. We're tired of looking at these guys who are 23, but they look 70 because they've got the giant droopy mustaches and the sideburns and the haircuts. And, and, you know, even though David Lee Roth did have sideburns and long hair and is totally stealing Jim Danny Mangrum's act from Black Oak, Arkansas. I mean, just absolutely copying it except for the washboard, but just copying the act. Him him and Axl Rose, which you denied before years ago, but those two guys, Sending him checks. Axel's getting it by way of David Lee Roth, though. I, I don't know if Axel knew about Jim Dandy, but he He's may. He's from Indiana. The, he had to. Uh, so probably, probably so. But the two things they left out here is they don't talk about the whole punk rock thing, and that Van Halen is basically just a reaction, kind of a co-opting of of some of the energy of punk rock or whatever, but not alienating people 
you know, I mean, the Ramones open for Edgar Winter around this time and get, th- you know, C cell batteries thrown at them. So there was something about punk rock that was not appealing to the hard rock masses at this point in time. But the other thing they don't mention is Eddie Van Halen and his guitar. Like, how the heck? It's like all David Lee Roth, it's all fun and games and excitement and spandex. And they don't mention you've got this incredible virtuoso guitar player with a new sound. Like his guitar sounded different. Just just playing power chords, it sounded different. The way, I don't know what Templeman and him were doing in the studio, but the way they recorded it with the amps, biggest step forward since Eric Clapton hooked up a Marshall amp with a Les Paul in the 60s. I mean, suddenly the record sounded different. They just, you know, skip over that. Not that that's terrible, but that, you know. No, and people well, also would listen to Eruption, too. I mean, just think how crazy that is. Yeah. The fact that people would not fast forward or skip through. I mean, you couldn't fast, you know, through a tape, but still, like, Eruption. Like, I, 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 I did not remember at that time any other instrumental, like, a you know, metal instrumental that everybody yeah. was, you know, and trying yeah, to come I mean, by this point. Well, Oh, yeah, look, there's a there's a, there's a drum solo from Moby Dick. Mm. Well, sure, right, but that's yeah. ten years earlier. Ten years earlier, yeah, yeah, yeah. and by that's the late seventies, yeah. that stuff is stale. And like, there's yeah, the I guitar to, solo got... from Heartbreaker and stuff like that. But I you listen to Eruption. And... What about my Sharona? The summer of '79. Summer of '78. I was disco roller skating to my Sharona. Oh yeah. Well, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. But either way. I'm pretty sure my Sharona was 1979, but we can, August, we can argue about that. August, August 78, I'm Beacon, New York. I was there. I'm just telling you, I don't know how they really, it was August 78. You know, uh, Nate, hmm. he's never yes, yes. going to give it up. You better stop. <laughs> Such a dirty mind. <laughs> well, I can, I mean, it's, 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 it's released in 1979. I mean, that's a factual statement. I don't give, Your memory is I don't, wrong. I, I don't know. I don't care. He was time traveling New York, baby. (laughs) It was on on the radio. It was being played in August of 78. It was released in 1979. It was not not even recorded by then. Bullshit. It's a lie. It's a lie. You know, there's a universe for New York. It was released in June 1979. (laughs) It was released in June 1979. That was number one on the pop singles card. it was being I'm played sorry, your memory then. is wrong. It was recorded in April 1979. So you, you're you're not yeah. So you know, don't derail me with with these, <laughs> these it, hazy then, then, hazy. Then it was a, a demo that was being played at a New York station. <laughs> I was just getting to it in August of '78. I bet you it was August of '79, but that's you know neither here yeah, nor there. A, I'm we, right. We, Anybody who wants to look it up bet, and see that I'm right. We, we better we better nickel. I will find I will find proof for you that this happened. Oh, a nickel! Come on now. Oh, <laughs> I mean, you can have a, you can have to have a recording. But let, let's try to sum up. So, they, I think what what's going on here is they're defining they because this episode is pre metal and the next episode is pre metal the UK division and is also going to go up to mm-hmm. through the end of the seventies. We got a dude who's born in nineteen seventy four telling the story. For him, metal starts in the eighties where he got into it with Metallica, et cetera, et cetera, or Iron Maiden, actually, new wave of heavy metal. But heavy metal was a term in use all through the 70s. you know. And, and if you said heavy metal, people generally knew what you meant, although it was this stuff like Ted Nugent, that Aerosmith, and Kiss that we would retroactively call hard rock rather than heavy metal because mm-hmm. there's no classical influence, there's no operatic influence, et cetera, et cetera. So I get where he's going with this. And the next episode, we'll do the same thing with England. And it ought to be pretty fun and interesting because you're going to get in the whole Led Zeppelin, Jeff Beck, uh, Black Sabbath, of course, and then uh, Judas Priest, Deep Purple. You know, much, 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 much to talk about next time. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate, Eugene, and Alexi continue the history of heavy metal with a discussion of British pioneers of the genre in the 1960s. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.